October 7th was this huge violation of a norm. People who have been observing Israel's oppression of Palestine for the last few years had this gasp moment of, we know what's about to happen next. We now know that Israel has dropped the, the tonnage equivalent of two atomic bombs. How do you think the media is affecting what's going on? The maximum effort to avoid killing civilians. Israel has dropped leaflets and has been telling Palestinians to move. I think the propaganda is bonkers. Israel allowing people in Gaza to flee as if that is a benevolent action on Israel's part. Oh, we're letting them run away. Palestinians have been exiled and Jews have been exiled. Palestinians have been targeted and Jews have been targeted. Palestinians have witnessed devastation over generations and so have Jews. And if we were to approach this from a love ethic, from a peace ethic, what lessons could be taught to the world? What do you say to people who say that this is not genocide? I say... The episode that you're about to listen to is probably the most important episode that I have ever recorded. I interviewed Catherine Bogan. She's not only a trauma therapist, she's also a Jewish American who has been pivotal with her activism of the Palestinian genocide. This episode not only helped me to understand the history, but also to understand what's really happening, the media propaganda, and what we can do to support and stop this genocide from happening. So I ask all of you to listen with an open heart and to please, please share this episode with as many as you can. Don't stop talking, don't stop listening, and don't stop sharing. Together, we will get through this. Thank you. Katie, um, I am so thankful that I came across your page and I know that it's under very hard circumstances with everything that's going on, but you have been a voice of advocacy that's so needed in this time. I would love to know a little bit about your background. What do I need to understand about your background, your childhood, your religious upbringing to understand the woman that I'm talking to today? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I really appreciate the chance to speak to the issue of the genocide that's ongoing in Palestine. And I do think I bring somewhat of a unique perspective to this because I am a diaspora Jewish woman. I was raised in the United States. Um, my grandfather was a Holocaust survivor and I was raised by the son of a Holocaust survivor. So my dad is a single dad and he and all of his siblings were raised by this man who had been very thoroughly traumatized um, by the Second World War. And I think being raised in this Zionist household by a family that really believed in the promise of Israel was so central to my understanding of my Judaism when I was a child. Um, I grew up in a very small town, a town of about 8,000 people that was 99% Caucasian and 99% Christian. So very white and not very Jewish. Um, and we were one of three Jewish families in the town. And so there was a lot of kind of low grade chronic anti-Semitism when I was growing up. Um, my classmates made anti-Semitic jokes, um, jokes about, you know, showers and gas chambers, and they'd throw up Nazi salutes in the hallway. And so when my family spoke about Israel, it was almost this fairyland, this fantasy of what 
safety from those microaggressions would be like of, you know, there's this land that exists where we don't have to face these microaggressions and um, we are safe and there's Jewish community that's much more normative. And I bought into that fiction. I really, I really wanted to believe in that fantasy. Um, and every Passover Seder in the spring, we would end each Seder with, you know, next year in Israel, where the the underlying promise of that is, you know, next year, we won't have to go through the kind of subtle anti-Semitism that we have to face here in the United States. Um, and, and I believed it. And it took until I was about 18 years old and getting more engaged in leftist politics um, and liberal politics to start to interrogate really if that promise of Israel could possibly be true and whose oppression, whose marginalization, whose experiences of violence and whose death would ultimately be the cost of, of that promise being realized. Um, and I came to this realization as some of my loved ones began going on birthright, which is a trip that I've spoken about a bit on my social media. It's a fully subsidized trip for Jewish youth um, to go to Israel for 10 days to meet Israeli soldiers and to learn about um, Israel as a state in our faith community. Um, and my friends and loved ones started coming back from this trip. And I knew enough from my introduction to leftist politics to ask the question of, well, what about Palestinians? And I remember having a conversation with a very close loved ones where I said, what about Palestinians? And she said, oh, do you mean the terrorists? And that was really the tipping point for me of realizing that some of this bias and this Islamophobia and bias against Palestine had infiltrated my own social network. And there was not this pretty fancy promise of Israel that was going to be lived out by my family. Instead, there was sort of an ugly underbelly to this promise, which was having to internalize a hatred and a bias toward a, another group of marginalized people. Um, I think that's as much of a, of a nutshell as I can compress my early childhood and being raised by, by a Jewish family, being sort of taught this promise of Israel, dealing with chronic low-grade anti-Semitism, and then coming to interrogate what was the cost um, of recognizing the promise of Israel. I'm just curious, when you think about your childhood and the perception of Palestine and Israel, break that down for me, because I know for me, you know, growing up, I didn't grow up with my Palestinian side of my family. My mom's half Palestinian and she grew up with them. And there was a lot of stuff that happened in her childhood and she decided to go off on her own. And so I actually didn't get in contact with that side of the family until I was older. My understanding was always just that it was a conversation that there's been a conflict of Israel and Palestine about land and religion and they want the land and they took the land. And that's really all I knew until this most recent genocide. And I really started understanding the history. I want to start with your perspective of what you were taught. And then I would love to know what you learned going into college and taking courses and doing your own research and what changed for you. Um, you learned much more than I did. <laughs> So I think part of Jewish socialization in the United States and in North America 
is this mythology that Israel was a land without a people for a people without a land of essentially Israel was not populated at all. Historic Palestine was not populated at all. And we stumbled upon this rich and beautiful land that was going to, you know, house our progeny. Um, and how lucky were we that this land just happened to be uninhabited. And so it's not that I was taught Jews are have this right to the land or are better than Palestinians or any of that. I was just taught that Palestine didn't exist, that, that Israel was founded on sort of nothingness and we built this metropolis out of nothing. Um, and then I got to college. So I, I didn't even really hear the word Palestine at all until I was about 18. Um, and I had started getting engaged in more leftist spaces. And I was hearing this whisper, whisper about Palestine and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And I had no idea what that was. And then um, this person who I dearly love came back from birthright. And I asked about Palestine because I was just starting to even hear that word for the first time. And she said, oh, you mean the terrorists? And I knew when I was 18, 19, that I really did want to go on birthright. I had this call toward Israel as, um, as this very land, as this fantasy. And I wanted to experience what it was like and, and join with my faith community. But I was nervous because of what I saw from my peers coming back from birthright, that it was going to be kind of a brainwashing technique. I had this little red flag going off of, I don't think this is everything that I'm being told. I don't think this is as perfect as I'm being told. So prior to going on the trip, I decided to take some coursework at my university. Um, and I went to Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts for undergrad. And I studied political science with a focus on comparative politics. So before I left on Birthright, I decided to take four courses very specific to the Levant and regional politics and Judaism. So I took um, Jewish experience, suffering and evil in the Jewish tradition, Middle East politics and Arab-Israeli conflict to try to get a very broad perspective. And I also had taken some other courses adjacent to the Holocaust and Genocide Studies Department and had heard the comparison of Israel to apartheid South Africa. And I'll try to condense what I learned in these four courses as much as possible, which is basically after, um, I mean, there was this sort of rush to, to colonize at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century by, by Europe and Britain and the United States trying to grasp up as much land as could be raped and pillaged for resources as possible. Um, and Britain had been attempting to colonize Palestine via the Balfour Agreement for many, many years prior to the end of World War II. And at the end of World War II, there was this horrific, traumatized population of Jewish people that needed to be resettled outside of Eastern Europe, where so much of their trauma and pain um, had been experienced and there was this push to move Jews out of Eastern Europe and this movement of Jews to, to kind of escape because who wants to stay in the land where they were just traumatized? Um, and there were about 100,000 to 120,000 Jews that needed to be resettled very quickly at the end of the war. And the United States, because the United States was still very anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish sentiment was still very loud at this time, did not want to resettle 100,000 Jews in the U.S. And Britain, the United Kingdom, did not want to resettle 100,000 Jews in the U.K. And here was this land 
of Palestine, surrounded by Arab and Muslim neighbors in Levant, which was an area that had not yet been effectively colonized, that was still sort of in the process of colonization. And you had this convenient group of 100,000 traumatized refugees that neither the United States or Britain wanted that could be resettled on a parcel of land and asked and tasked essentially with doing military labor for the West. And they and the U.S. and Britain could say, oh, here, this is our gift to you, you poor traumatized Jews who need a homeland. Why don't you just settle here? And if you could get your population to do conscripted military service to protect this land that is totally yours, please do that. And in return, we will trade with you. We will partner with you. We will help you defend this land that is absolutely yours. Um, and you can have a home. And that way, we don't have to be bothered with all these freaking Jews that we don't want. And there were these waves and waves of migration of Jews starting in the, the late 1800s and going through the end of World War II to settle in historic Palestine and build the state of Israel. And that's sort of the more political U.S.-U.K. branch of this. But there was also a movement in Judaism by, you know, Theodore Herzl at the end of the 19th century, who was the, the father of modern Zionism. He was an, an atheistic Jew, but a cultural Jew who had noticed this anti-Semitism across Europe and also wanted a safe space for Jews to settle and identified historic Palestine as this space. And so there was this combined sort of political and cultural shift of we need a historic land for Jews. And how great would it be if this could also be a colonizing project? And how neat would it be if they could also do our military labor and then we didn't have to deal with all these refugees? And thus, Israel was birthed. Um, and what's so devastating and heartbreaking to me is there were already 20 to 25,000 Palestinian Jews living in historic Palestine just at the turn of the 1800s to the 1900s. Um, and those people all of a sudden had their Palestinian Jewish identity completely wrested from them and were told, you're now Israeli Jews, you're not Palestinian anymore. And there's this identity loss for this these families, these 25 to 30,000 people, where they their Palestinian identity was stolen from them essentially overnight with the creation of the land of Israel. Um, and the more I learned about the the political exercise of resettling Jews because of anti-Semitism and tasking them with this military labor and engaging in this colonizing project, the less it felt like our ties to the land were legitimately grounded in Jewish faith or Jewish tradition, and the more it felt like a supremacist sort of hegemonic land grab by these two colonizing nations who didn't want to deal with Jews. So we hear this term Zionism. And I think this term is very new for a lot of people who are now hearing it for the first time. Um, explain to me what that is and what do people need to understand about Zionism? So Zionism, as I understand it, is the political project of establishing a Jewish nation state, an ethno-nationalist state in the land of Israel, which is geographically within historic Palestine. So it, it, Zionism is the project of establishing the state of Israel as a holy land and a homeland for Jewish people specifically. 
And Zionism has always prioritized this land as being a homeland for Ashkenazi Jews. So these are Jews that are essentially white, um, Jews from, from Europe and Eastern Europe, not Mizrahi Jews, not Sephardic Jews, who would be the Jews that were, you know, Spanish or um, from Morocco and Northern Africa, really prioritizing the settlement of white Jews for the establishment of this homeland. Um, and I consider Zionism to refer to this settler colonial project of wresting land from historic Palestine and gifting it to, to Jewish people in order to maintain a military stronghold in the Middle East. What, what dumbfounds me is I see, I see a lot of smart people, a lot of people that I know are intelligent, they're smart. Some people who I've even had on this show and somehow defend what's going on or gaslight what's happening and talk about, well, what about Hamas? What about this? And I heard you talk about something that I thought was really fascinating called whataboutism. Explain to me what that is and why do we see these smart, intelligent people who just it, do they is it real? I can't wrap my brain around it. Is it that they know what's going on and don't care? Or is it that they're just so, they're so aligned with their belief system of Zionism that they just refuse to see the genocide that's actually happening right before their eyes? Sadly, I think both. I think there are groups of people who know what's going on, can intellectually label this violence as collective punishment against a civilian population and do not care. And I think there are people who are so wrapped up in Zionism that they refuse to see that the intellectual exercise of that recognition is too burdensome for them. And so they just turn it off. Um, whataboutism is a rhetorical tactic of pivoting away from a certain point or concern in order to shift rhetorical focus and conversational focus to a different concern. So anytime someone brings up, okay, the Israeli occupation force is carpet bombing Gaza civilians and has killed now an estimated 15,000 people who are innocent and has not effectively targeted Hamas, people can say, well, you know, Hamas is using people as human shields and isn't this what Israel has to do, which then shuts down any conversation about the 15,000 dead civilians and focuses instead on this perceived risk of Hamas. Um, and I think it's important to note, too, just some statistics for comparison, that the best estimates we have from the U.S. State Department, which is a biased source of intelligence still, is that there are about 30 to 40,000 members of Hamas spread throughout the Middle East and throughout the Levant, so not even necessarily specifically in Gaza, but in neighboring countries as well. And we know that there are approximately 170,000 active duty military service people in the Israeli occupation force, as well as half a million service people in reserves. So the forces of the Israeli military so far outarm Hamas just in numbers. We've got 30 to 40,000 versus about 650,000. 
Never mind the actual weaponry that is accessible to Hamas versus Israel. Israel, you have this iron dome, you have this defense system that um, is able to intercept rockets and able to keep their citizenry relatively safe. Israel has access to military-grade weaponry that Hamas cannot possibly touch. And so you have a, a David and Goliath situation, pardon my use of a you know, Torah um, metaphor here, where no matter how much Hamas attempts to harm Israel, Israel will always be able to bombard Gaza and punish Palestine in a way that Hamas cannot possibly retaliate against. And October 7th was this huge violation of, of a norm of Israel being able to commit all of this violence and harm against Palestinian civilians and Hamas really not being able to effectively um, retaliate. And I think this norm was so shocking that people who have been observing Israel's oppression of Palestine for the last few years had this gasp moment of, oh my gosh, Israeli citizens were actually very, very harmed on October 7th. And that is devastating and it's inexcusable. And we know what's about to happen next. We know that this response and this retaliation is going to be brutal. Is There's no such thing as a, as a proportionate response when it comes to Israeli reactions to Hamas. It's going to be so disproportionate that many, many people are going to die. And we all sort of froze in anticipation of whatever evil and whatever um, viciousness was going to happen next. And our worst fears were realized when this carpet bombing of Gaza began to occur. And we, we now know that Israel has dropped the, the tonnage equivalent of two atomic bombs on Gaza in the last two months. We have, Israel has committed Hiroshima twice. It's, it's just devastating to think about the brutalization that people in Gaza are being sieged by right now. Um, and I think whataboutism allows people to totally pivot the conversation from the violence that's being enacted to a threat that was once imagined and because of October 7th has now been rhetorically legitimized, which is, which is devastating. Um, and to your point as well about, about whether people know that this is happening and just don't, just don't care. I really think the older generation of Jews, both in Israel and in the diaspora, are too close in proximity to the Holocaust and to this mass trauma that we have they have internalized that traumatization and their post-traumatic stress is blunting their empathy and blunting their compassion. Epigenetic trauma has been proven in scientific literature in terms of things like cortisol and stress response, right? Where, where the generation removed from people who have experienced mass violence have a more exaggerated stress response to perceived threat. And when you have an exaggerated stress response to perceived threat, you really do internalize the, it's us or them, it's kill or be killed. We have to do whatever violence is necessary to defend ourselves. And my generation has gotten to do a little bit more healing and gotten more distance from the Holocaust and our genetics have done the work to do some of that healing um, so that we don't internalize the message of it's kill or be killed, it's us or them, and we have to do whatever violence is necessary to maintain our survival. And I think the older generation knows that what is happening in Gaza is 
a human rights abuse. It's a violation of international law. And on top of that, it's just heartbreaking. And they can't care because their trauma response is blunting their empathy. And the younger generation can care because we are, you know, 40 years removed from that trauma response. That's such an interesting perspective. And I see that in other ways as well, because when I talk to my grandfather, his view on what's happening is, is almost, it's not to say that it's without empathy of the other side of the coin, but I think his generation is so rooted in trauma, especially with the Nakba and with, you know, the things that he's experienced in his lifetime. And then you talk to my cousins who are around my age and they're able to differentiate like, no, we, we didn't, we weren't old enough to vote for Hamas. Like we weren't even around when that happened. And, you know, there's a very different perspectives. And I was in the military and I see a large percentage of the military population or people that I served with who are pro-Israel. And my theory is, is because a lot of that generation, including myself, um, served post 9-11. And a lot of us went into service because of that. So you have this big event with 9-11 that um, then caused us to go to war, you know, and then we had this whole Iraq and Afghanistan conflict for still going on to this day. And so a lot of people are seeing this genocide is very similar to the post 9-11 attacks. And then you have the, um, the racism that happens when it comes to people of Arabic descent who are still looked at as quote unquote terrorists. And the way that it's labeled in the media, I feel like has been labeling Palestinians as barbarians or animals, especially when it comes from Israel. How do you think the media has affected what's happening? Is the media portraying this correctly or is there propaganda happening? Oh, I think the propaganda is bonkers, frankly. (laughs) I've been reading these New York Times headlines that are just so upsetting and so biased um, about, for example, Israel um, allowing people in Gaza to flee as if that is a benevolent action on Israel's part of, oh, we're letting them run away as we bomb and shoot them and exile them from their historic homeland. How generous are we? Um, so even, even the headlines have been horrifically biased, but I think the language too that's being used, even in calling it the Israel-Hamas war, which almost all sort of North American news outlets have adopted this title for, for the genocide that's going on right now, is Israel-Hamas war, does so many things simultaneously. One, it creates the false equivalence that it's Israel against Hamas, as opposed to that it's Israel carpet bombing Palestinian civilians. And it puts all Palestinians under the umbrella of Hamas. And it suggests that Israel's violence has been directed against Hamas, which is not true. I think point like less than half of 1% of the deaths that Israel has caused, less than half of 1% of the people that Israel has killed in Palestine have been Hamas operatives. The vast majority of brutality and violence has been directed against Palestinian civilians. And then you call it a war which again implies some equivalent force when Israel can art, out-arm and out 
brutalize Palestine a thousand times over. They have tanks and weaponry that Palestinians cannot possibly access. And so framing this thing as a war when the violence really since after October 7th has been unidirectional is absurd. There isn't bi-directional violence happening. There's one group that is bombing civilians and committing um, collective punishment against a civilian population that is sheltering, terrified with no means of retaliation, and that is fleeing their ancestral home with their hands up. That's not a war. And so even just the titling of what's going on is propagandist. And then you have what I think is a beautiful, compassionate, empathetic form of cognitive resistance from the younger generation in the United States who are willing to hear the Palestinian journalists on the ground and listen to the suffering of Palestinian civilians and hold space and internalize their pain and show them empathy and compassion, primarily on TikTok, which is one of the platforms that has not as efficiently silenced pro-Palestine voices as, say, for example, Facebook and Instagram. And so did your TikTok get shut down? It did. And then it got brought back. I still don't really know how it got brought back, but it did, which I'm grateful for. Um, so so they're, they're still silencing people, just not as efficiently as, as Facebook or Instagram. Um, and I am very grateful that they brought my, my TikTok back. I'm, it's, it's a little strange to hold these two things. Um, and then the, the mainstream news media in North America is saying, oh, is, is the TikTok algorithm pro-Palestine? Does this have something to do with some sinister social media actor as opposed to just recognizing that younger people are on TikTok, that younger people on TikTok are hearing the boots on the ground stories from Gazan and Palestinian civilians who are being brutalized and violated, that we are actually listening and opening our hearts to those narratives of pain and that we are pro-Palestine. And so instead of us having this learning moment where we come to a more humanitarian love ethic in support of Palestine, it must be that the algorithm is manipulating us. And that take on TikTok is in and of itself propaganda. So yeah, I think your concerns about whether propaganda is being spread are so, so valid. And it's horrifying to me to see people who I think of as critical thinkers and thought leaders wholesale accept the representation of Palestine that is being disseminated by Western news media. It's devastating. It, it, it dumbfounds me. I'm, I'm, t- I'm telling you these people that like I've respected and have doctors and people of, you know, you're intelligent. I mean, here's the thing. I know Jewish people and I have Jewish friends who have reached out and say that I cannot believe what's happening. I don't agree with this. It's not right. And it's not a Jewish Palestinian issue right now. It's, it's government and in Zionism and these people that I've known who I thought were friends and people who I thought were smart people. I, I don't understand how you can be so naive to fall for the propaganda, or is it that you're just, you, you just believe your narrative so much that anything that fits your narrative you go with. Like I saw um, something that was posted on the Israeli government Instagram of a Palestinian girl and they, they dubbed it and the dub was so bad. Terrible. I mean, anybody who does editing, I mean, you don't even have to do editing to know that it was absolutely dubbed. 
Um, and they made it to where she was speaking about um, Hamas and how Hamas is doing all these terrible things. But in reality, if you um, find the original video, it was from about a year ago where she was speaking against Israel. And it's just, I'm like, this is a, a government state website and they dubbed it to make it seem like she was saying something else when in reality, this was a video from a long time ago. And then we have the other videos that went viral of two that come to mind, one of an actress who was uh, a nurse and she was pretending to be Palestinian in a hospital. Come to find out it was an Israeli actress. Um, there was another video that I think uh, PBS or a, Brit a, a big British um, TV tele television station who was interviewing one of the um, Israeli soldiers. They pointed to the, I'm sure you've seen it. They pointed to the calendar saying this is Hamas's schedule when in reality, it was literally just a hospital schedule. Um, but the propaganda that's being used to try to convince people that, hey, what we're doing is justified and people are actually believing this is so scary to me that the propaganda and people are so naive to actually believing what's going on. Um, and then you have this argument about Hamas on how I would love to get your take on this because a lot of people say, well, the Palestinian people voted for Hamas. You guys are pro-Hamas. What about Hamas? So what do you say to people who come forward with the narrative that Palestinians voted for Hamas and were pro-Hamas? What, what do you say to that? I have such strong feelings about this question because it is it is very complicated. First of all, the mean age, the average age of people in Gaza is 18 years old. The last time Hamas won an election was 17 years ago. So the average Gazan was one year old and did not vote when that happened. Never mind that even when Hamas won the election, they didn't win a majority of votes. They won a plurality of votes. It was something like 40%, 45% of votes, not a 70% majority. So even at the time that they won the election, the election was split between Hamas and Fatah, the Palestinian Authority. So the people who are being held accountable now for voting for Hamas didn't, first of all. Second of all, that's like saying... If, if someone attacked the United States because they are pro-Trump and Biden was elected, it's like saying the United States deserves this for electing Biden when we know that many, many people in the United States don't support Biden. It doesn't mean that the citizens who don't support this group are still liable for whatever the group that elected Hamas is liable for. That doesn't make any sense to me. Not only is this a, a punishment for a quote-unquote sin that people are holding people accountable for that happened 17 years ago, but Hamas is a much more complicated political actor than folks are, are learning from, from news media. Hamas has four different arms, one of which is a military resistance arm, right? And so it's saying because one quarter of this group works on resistance to the Zionist regime and to an occupation, then all these other parts of the group who are not part of this military wing also also deserve to be annihilated, right? So we don't know, based on the, you know, half of 1% of people who have been murdered by Israel that are Hamas, what percent of those were actually Hamas militants or people who worked in administration or healthcare? or at a school, it's impossible to tell. 
something that's important to keep in mind too is the most recent sort of population polls in in Palestine still show that Hamas doesn't have majority support. But every time there is a conflict with Israel, every time Israel is aggressive, of course, support for Hamas increases because this is the only group resisting Israel with force. Palestinians see Hamas as really their only defender against the chronic oppression and violence that's perpetrated by Israel. And what do we think happens for popular support for Hamas when Israel behaves aggressively to this degree? You have a whole population of people now who are watching their friends and families die, who are watching their loved ones die, who are the only surviving members of their families. We know that depression rates in Gaza are astronomical. 70% of Gazan adults experience some form of depression or like depressive symptoms. Over 90% of Gazan children have post-traumatic stress disorder or have some post-traumatic stress symptom. So you have a traumatized population, a depressed population, a population Mm -hmm. that has incredibly disproportionate rates of suicidality that are watching this violence against their loved ones. And you think these people are not going to be willing to become martyrs? They have nothing left to live for. You've just killed... You, you've annihilated their community. You've massacred their loved ones. You've traumatized them. Their mental health symptoms are through the roof. Of course Hamas is going to have an easier time recruiting. They're recruiting from a population that's being spiritually and emotionally castrated. The logic of, well, what about Hamas is so ridiculous to me. It's really interesting, too, because I think about we've been here before. This isn't anything new. Like we've we've seen this with Native Americans. We've seen this with the Hawaiian people. Um, we've seen this with slavery. And I compare it to that because it is oppression. And I don't understand the logic of, no, this is not oppression. It's oppression. You cannot oppress the oppressor. There's no neutrality in this for me. And it's no, it's not because I'm Palestinian. Like, of course, it sits near and dear to my roots, but it's you don't have to be Muslim or Palestinian to see that this is oppression. You have an oppressor and you have the oppressed, the, the people who are being oppressed. And I, we've seen this when it comes to oppression time and time again. Like you wouldn't say, oh, the, the Native Americans shouldn't have fought back. Slaves shouldn't have fought back. No, we look back at history and of course they fought back. Of course they tried to fight for their freedom. They had nothing else to to live for at that point but to try to be free. And so I see this. It's in modern times. It's different perspectives, different scenarios, but it's still the same. Oppression shows up in different ways, but at the end of the day, it's still the same. What do you say to people who say that this is not oppression? I say the propaganda has done its job. The propaganda has worked exceptionally well. I think one of the things that makes this situation so complicated is that Jewish people really do have not only a history of being oppressed. We've seen this from, you know, being expelled from every place where we settled for thousands of years. And then the huge mass trauma and casualty of the Holocaust, the brutality of the Holocaust, but ongoing anti-Semitism. And so this is one of the few instances in history, I think, where the people who are being oppressive, um, the Israeli government, which is being so oppressive on behalf of the Jewish people, is able to point to very legitimate historical oppression and say, 
look, look, it's, it's different than saying, you know, reverse racism or something like that. But if you look at any human rights scholarship, whether it's Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch or the International Journal of Human Rights or any peer-reviewed publication that examines genocide, if you look at genocide and apartheid scholarship, there is consensus in the academic community. There is consensus in the human rights community. There is consensus in the UN and international political actors. This is not a debate. And the fact that it's being treated as such a debate says to me that the propaganda is doing its job to obscure literature, to obscure scholarship, to obscure truth. And I also think, I mean, we've talked about the the imbalance of violence, the amount of death that Israel has been able to reap onto Gaza, the amount of violence that Israel has been able to perpetrate against Palestinians just has not been matched. There's no possibility for Palestine to retaliate. So this idea that Palestine could oppress Israel when the actual strength is so unequal is an absurd exercise in cognitive dissonance to me. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense. What we think about it, like if somebody, God forbid, was to attack the U.S. on U.S. soil, which has happened before, we wouldn't look at it as oppression versus the oppressor because it's more of an even playing field. And, you know, we have the resources, we have a large military we have um, support from other countries. Um, there is a, a legitimized oppression that's happening, and this is not new. That's the thing. This has been going on for a very, very long time. And I hear Israeli and, and even Americans talk about, well, no, no, we give them jobs and we give them all of these rights. We even have them in our government. But from my understanding, and I'm not the expert in this by any means, but from my understanding, there's there's a there was and is a lot of restrictions, especially for Gazans. And even from what my grandfather tells me, like he had land in Bet Hanina, which is another it's outside of Gaza, but it's still a, a, a Palestinian community. Um, you really don't see Palestinian communities throughout Israel. Um, and there's like certain ID cards that I've been told that are specific to Palestinians. And so, you know, you have all of these things that keep separation and you, and that keeps the oppression. Imagine, this is what I want people to imagine. Imagine as a person of color living in the U S and you were told that you had to have a separate identification, that you had to live in a specific separate neighborhood. And we've had that. We had segregation right behind us, generation, maybe two generations. We've been through this. Imagine if that happened today, the uproar and the amount of civil rights activists and riots and all of these things that would happen. But yet it's happening in modern day society, you know, just a hop, skip and away across the ocean. And we don't bat an eye. And we're over here still saying that this is not oppression. It absolutely is. How do you think this younger generation compared to maybe a generation behind us is reacting to this genocide. Do you think that people are finally starting to recognize that it's a genocide? Yes. Um, I think people who are on social media and particularly on TikTok are being able to see 
a representation from Palestinian journalists and from Palestinian youth that is being obscured from the rest of media. And so some of the younger generation is getting a perspective that would otherwise be hidden. Um, I do think, too, some of it has to do with just broad empathy. Like we over the last 10 years have seen so many different movements for social justice across North America, whether it's Black Lives Matter or Me Too. There have been these popular grassroots movements that have come out of a a younger sort of generational push toward egalitarianism and toward realizing the promise of democracy that we are now coming to terms with being um, a front or a lie, um, movements against wealth inequality, movements against um, housing restrictions, recognition of the historical legacy of redlining and all of these different forms of racialized and identity-based violence. And so we've been socialized into conversations about social justice and egalitarianism that our ancestors and that prior generations were not. And so I, I think that not only have we seen these waves and waves of social justice movement, at the same time, we've seen these waves and waves of Israeli perpetrated violence over the same decade. In 2013 and 2014, Israeli bombardment of Gaza and Palestine. In 2018, in 2021, in 2023. And so we're having these conversations about social justice, social justice, and and becoming better able to recognize when human rights are being violated and when a marginalized population is being targeted. And all the while we're doing that, we're seeing example after example after example after example of apartheid and genocidal violence and ethnic cleansing by a government against a population that is so disenfranchised on the ground. And I think these wisdoms blossoming simultaneous to these examples fomenting disgust and horror was kind of ideal timing for younger generations to say, this is terrible. This is abusive. It's, it's a brutal regime. It is a violation of human rights that is so clear because of what we've learned in all of these other contexts. And I remember too, first sort of learning about about Palestine and Gaza in like the early 2010s for me and the West Bank as well. I don't want to, um, I don't want to minimize the horror that the West Bank has experienced because of settlements and IOF violence. Um, but seeing this in 2013 and starting to get uncomfortable and sad and having that sadness turn to anger in 2018, 2019, when there were these additional waves of violence. And then more, more strident anger in 2021. I remember the last bombardment of Gaza posting something on Twitter, like, if anyone's wondering where I stand on this as a Jewish woman, fuck Israel. I was just so angry, like again and again and again, seeing this government who pretends to represent me and my faith community do this horrible thing. And after 2021, seeing this happen again in 2023 and having the bracing experience on October 7th of Israel is about to rain fire on a civilian population. And we've seen it before and we know it's going to happen again. And this sense of helpless rage of how is there nothing we can do to stop this? How is the only thing that we can do to stop this? Speaking and speaking and speaking. Like, just this helpless rage. And 
I think that compounding effect, that magnifying effect, has been mirrored in other Jewish youth across the United States and other activist and leftist youth across the United States as well. Our generation gives me hope, that's for sure. I mean, I've, I've without a doubt, I felt it myself. You know, I lost, God, I, I want to say like 40% of my listeners this month. Um between the like the last five weeks, because I've been very vocal about Palestine, but as many people as I've lost, I've also gained a lot of new people and new communities. And, you know, at the end of the day, I feel strongly that I have to speak on what's morally right for me more than a brand, more than a business, more than my podcast. It's it just, I want to sleep at night. I just feel yeah. like it's morally right to speak up for like, I can't watch these videos and not feel like, how can you not speak up? How can you not say something? So what you're doing, especially being a Jewish woman, it's so, so important. And the advocacy, and I know, and I know that you've probably gotten heat for it. I wouldn't doubt you've gotten heat from family, from friends, um, from, you know, people on the internet who can be so devastatingly mean and just um, hateful. And so I, I think what you're doing is very brave and it's so needed. Looking ahead for you, what's your vision for a just and sustainable resolution considering the beliefs and actions of both sides, both on the Jewish community and the Muslim Palestinian community? I think that is such a complicated question to answer as someone who exists in the diaspora, because I have to admit that I have emotions in the game. I have compassion and empathy in the game, but I don't have skin in the game. Like, I don't live in historic Palestine. I don't live in Israel. And I truly think that the best cohort of people to decide what happens next are the peace activists on the ground in Israel and Palestine who have been trying to do this work for the last several generations, who have been saying, no, no, we can, we can create a peaceful coexistence. I think about the fact that prior to 1948 and the Nakba and the establishment of the Jewish state, there were Jewish Palestinians and Palestinian Jews and people just coexisted in this space and didn't have to have this artificial barrier all of a sudden erected between their identities and hoping for a return to a single state. And I, I said this on an interview um, earlier, and I just think it's so salient. There, There's this show called The West Wing that was written um, by Aaron Sorkin. Um, that's sort of a, a political fantasy of what democracy could be. And in the show, there's an attempted um, peace accord between Palestine and Israel. And one of the characters in the show talks about this similarity between Palestinians and Jews and says, you know, it's so it's so devastating that there's this this conflict and this genocide um, because Palestinians and Jews have so much in common all throughout history, no one has wanted either one of them. And I, that, that just hits for me. There's something so profound and beautiful about the shared compassion that can come from shared suffering. Palestinians have been exiled and Jews have been exiled. Palestinians have been targeted and Jews have been targeted. Palestinians have witnessed devastation over generations and so have Jews. And I think about the potential for a collaborative homeland 
between Palestinians and Jews. And if we were to approach this from a love ethic, from a peace ethic, what lessons could be taught to the world about forgiveness and empathy and and the capacity of human beings to build safety for one another? And I acknowledge that as a white Jewish person who looks like the oppressor, who really appears as the oppressor, that is easier for me to say than it probably is for Palestinians to say who have been brutalized and brutalized and brutalized for generations. And this shared trauma is the thing that gives me hope for a shared future of peace. Because I do think if we can do some healing and tap into our empathy, that's where we build our recognition of each other's humanity is we have been through such similar shit and we could create safety for each other if we could just recognize that mutual history. I, I have no words for that. It's just absolutely beautiful and true. And my hope is the same as yours. Um, I'm praying that there's something that changes soon. And um, my heart goes out to anybody who's been affected by this. And chances are, you know, even somebody like me, I've felt it for generations with trauma and how it's been passed down. So, you know, this definitely sits near and dear to my heart. Um, Katie, thank you so much for the advocacy, the bravery, the continued support that you've had for um, Palestinians and just the continued education, because I feel like you come from a lens of not only empathy, but also education and facts. And I think that this is a time that we need both. We need to understand the history. We need to understand the facts beyond the propaganda, beyond the media. And most, most importantly, we need to have empathy. We, we can't go through this without empathy. If we don't have empathy, we're lost. So um, thank you for continuing to do this. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I want to I want to end with I guess my role as a student is I I feel so strongly not only as an academic but as a as a Jewish youth and as an activist that I have been a student of my Judaism in terms of the mission of tikkun olam and healing the world and creating a softer world and I am a student of Palestine in terms of resilience and action against an ongoing oppressor and our, our love ethic and our learning ethics sort of have to be intertwined. So I love Palestine very, very much. I love my Judaism very, very much. And I so appreciate the work that you're doing as well um, to educate people and to call in both Palestinian and Jewish voices for peace talks, essentially. Yes. Thank you, Katie. Thank you.